You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott and gang. I'm Dominic Chewin for Kelly Evans today, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The Nasdaq, the big underperformer during this holiday-shortened trading week, down about 2% or so. So we're asking, does the tech rally still have legs? Sam Lesson of Slow Ventures says yes, while our stock picker says some names are in, quote, serious trouble. Also, in that tech sphere today, we're following that bipartisan group of lawmakers traveling to Silicon Valley to meet with executives about China, the latest and what the group can realistically achieve. Plus, there's this week's jobs data. It came in weaker across the board, and now revisions are painting a far uglier picture than initially reported. We'll dig into those numbers and what the Fed needs to do at its May interest rate meeting. But first, let's start with today's market action on the last trading day of this holiday-shortened week. As you can see, we're a little bit mixed, but the better part of the story is we are well off our session lows. The Dow is now down just about eight points, which is, call it flat on the session. But the S&P, just a hair below 4,100, 4,097 the last trade there. We're up about seven points. At the highs of the session, we were up roughly 13, down 21 at the lows of the session. So decidedly higher given what we've seen Earlier today, up about two-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq Composite outperforming up one-half of one percent. The Composite is 12044 That's the last trade. One of the big things to keep a close eye on, we're actually seeing a lot of bullishness in the regional bank names. Yes, we know, albeit off a very low base, they've been embattled. The whole industry has. But look today, PNC Financial, Fifth Third Bank Ford, Fifth Third Bank Corp and Truist, all up anywhere from one-and-a-half to almost two-and-a-half percent. Even First Republic Bank, 3.5% gains there. And Western Alliance, a big downside move earlier this week, now up about 4% today, trying to find some stability in those regional banks. And then the stock of the day is arguably an economic bellwether for the consumer. That is Costco. Those shares are down about 2% right now, off the worst levels of the session. Costco came out and reported numbers for monthly sales after yesterday's close If you look at those numbers, U.S. same-store sales, sales growth at existing store locations came in nine-tenths of one percent higher if you strip out the effects of gasoline prices. The reason why that's important, it's the slowest same-store sales growth going all the way back to April of 2020 in the wake of the virus pandemic. So watch those Costco shares. Now let's get right to the story rocking the economic world today. When the Labor Department reported the latest jobless claims number this morning, it also announced some major revisions. And Steve Leisman is here to explain why that's important ahead of the big jobs print coming tomorrow. Steve. Hey, Dom, thanks. Yeah, the pandemic played havoc with the economy, but also we're learning now with the economic numbers. Department of Labor today issued revisions to jobless claims that told a different story about the job market, one that is weaker than previously believed. The government's revision of seasonal adjustments in the jobless claim report showed that since the beginning of the year, there were 312,000 more applications for unemployment insurance than originally reported. It was the largest upward revision you could see here. This shows that it's going up. We thought it was flat during this period before it was a little better than expected. The bigger story is what economists thought was the flat number, now a rising number right here. Labor Department said the surge in claims uh, during the pandemic created distortions in the seasonal adjustments. Thinks it's now corrected those. But the new claims numbers make a lot more sense. As companies announced increased layoffs beginning late last year, the claims numbers barely budge. This is the Challenger data right here. You can see there, they said there were another 80,000 job cuts in March today, and that totaled 270,000 in the first quarter. 
Little of that showed up in the jobless claims. Now it makes a little more sense. The new data adds to a series of reports Dom was talking about. They've come in below expectations, and they show the job market is indeed slowing. While the revisions could play a role for the Fed, the proof it needs to stop hiking is not likely to come from job creation or jobless claims or job cuts. It's going to be in perhaps lower wage increases and whether that shows up in helping bring down inflation. Dom? All right. Come on over, Steve, because we're going to add to this discussion about what's happening with the economy. If the job market is actually cooling faster than the original data suggested, are we actually closer to a Fed pause or even an outright cut in interest rates? Joining me now is Dalip Singh, chief global economist over at PGIM, PGIM Fixed Income, along with our own Rick Santelli as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank all of you for being here right now. Uh, Rick, I want to go to you. Steve laid out uh, an interesting case with regard to what the data could suggest. Is there anything in the markets right now that is painting more of that disconnect picture between what the eco data suggests and what the expectations actually are? Well, it's a game changer to be sure, uh, but interest rates look like they haven't been affected dramatically. And the problem with that reasoning is, is that the flight to safety and the recent spat of weak economic data have so depressed yields that this new news, which in my opinion is a game changer, might look like it just fitting in. But it really is a game changer. Steve had some good lines, but let's go to the real numbers real quickly here. You know, if you look at continuing claims, we hadn't had 1,713,000 in four weeks. And it wasn't many over 1.7 million, as you see. Now look at the new data. Not only did we have one, two, three, four, five in a row, we have three in a row above 1.8 million. And if you look at continuing claims, the psychological level of 200,000, we had one in the last four weeks. You have to go all the way back another nine weeks. Now look at this. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight nine in a row that are above that psychological area of 200,000. Why is any of this important? Well, we have a three-day weekend in the U.S. with the holiday tomorrow. We have a four-day weekend with Europe with the holidays. And all of this is going to happen when we release potentially the biggest number ever tomorrow in jobs. After all these revisions going back to 2020, Anything can happen here, Dom. We have recalibrated on the fly, and it really does just to put in bold letters what many I know we want to get to delete. Saying, I don't trust the data. Rick, I know we want to get to delete, but I like what you said at the beginning. The market's already there. The market already has this weakness built in. And it, it, when you look at the, like the Fed funds outlook January 2024, I know Rick gets me excited about this economic data. <laughs> I wasn't excited when I talked to him. But here's the thing. You look at what's happened to yields. I think the market says, you know what, we're going to have this weakness. It, it didn't know about the proof, but it felt it out there and it was priced that way. Dalip, so let's bring you in. What well, a look time. Look at it another way, though. Hold on. Okay. Look at All it right, another Rick. way. <laughs> if you're thinking there's a bounce back, after the flight to safety, think again. That's a that good, is all right, a that's a good point. story. A that, combination of both. That, that, so the markets are certainly playing out. So, so Dalip, uh, uh, to, to both of these gentlemen's points, what a time to be alive when you're the head of fixed income in those instruments and these types of markets. It's got to be a time when you're maybe a little bit confused or is there something that you can take away from this mishmash of economic data? Yeah, the data got Rick excited. But look, I, I think uh, risk management principles tell you if you're the Fed, it's time to pause. You know, hiking another 25 basis points, it can produce a small incremental gain in terms of cooling inflation. 
but at this point it risks a much larger and nonlinear amount of pain when the fragilities in the banking sector are still high and when we're seeing more evidence now of an inflection point in the labor market with the high frequency data. And look, if you wanna land this economy softly, you can't be strictly dependent on the spot data. You have to be forward looking. And that's why you have to look past some of the lagging indicators like inflation, which will probably look sticky next week. And you got to focus on the rate of change and the leading indicators for the labor market and make a judgment about the size and the persistence of the shock in the banking sector, which I think will be large and will have a long tail. Now, Dalip, with that, if, if that's the case and if, if that's what your belief is, then the markets do have it correct right right now. We, we have seen this kind of bigger medium term move in rates lower as a bid for government bonds has come because of perhaps fears of a softening economy, perhaps because fears of a credit tightening, because of fears of a possible recession, hard or soft, whatever you want to call it. So then what's the path forward? Is it going to stay this way for a while or we're going to see some kind of a volatile bounce back in some of those yields if the data is not the way people think it's going to be? Whenever you get a shock, markets tend to overshoot. And initially after the SVP news, you saw uh, rates markets overreact to some extent. But I think now they've settled into a territory where I actually don't have a disagreement with the market. Two to three cuts by the end of the year after uh, a peak of around 5% in Fed funds. That seems about right to me. Can I just uh, put a little context sure, out here, which please. I think is fairly important. Rick is right. It's a game changer. And the, what's a game changer about this number, guys, if you could bring up that first chart that we started with with jobless claims on it, is the trend. And the trend is now up. And Rick was right to make an important point about how we thought it was flat. We thought it was under 200. And now it's rising. However, I will make the point that for me, 250, and Rick, you can tell me I'm wrong about this, is the top of the range of okay or the bottom of the range where I start to worry in terms of actual numbers. Now, the trend is what's worrying here, but the actual level is not one that is one that says, oh, my God. Things are going haywire. Right, right, right. Rick, do you want to comment on that? Is that is that the wrong way to think about it? No, I don't think so. I think 250 can be your kind of fulcrum. To me, it's 200,000. But I think the bigger issue for me is to go the other way that we've seen the best numbers. We've seen the highest yields, in my opinion, in the rearview mirror. And for tens, it was all the way back in the fall. So to me, the proof is now in the trend and the notion that this recalibration has potentially caught the Fed and investors off guard. They're going to be left-footed here for a while. There's much more risk all of a sudden in many portfolios than there was before these revisions. So, Dalip, speaking of risk in portfolios right now, if you're looking across the entire fixed income market, be it on the on the Treasury rate side or the credit side of things, there have to now be certain pockets of opportunity or places that you want to be positioned if there is, in fact, this notion that the economic picture picture will worsen and that the Fed likely, at least the market thinks, have to cut rates in some time in the next six to nine months. Yeah, I think it means that fixed, high quality, risk free fixed income, particularly with long duration, uh, is a place where you'll see more rotation of money. Let's not forget, I mean, the labor market data are going to tell us uh, the direction in terms of the economy. Uh, but we've got to get through this banking sector shock, and then we're staring at the debt ceiling. This is the this is the path ahead. I think they all point towards lower yields in longer-term securities. 
Okay, now, Rick, I just want to ask one question to end our roundtable discussion here. If it is, in fact, a scenario where some of those risk-free assets with longer duration are now the place that you want to see the rotation to, doesn't that help with the regional banking crisis? Yes, I think it does. All right. Steve, what do you think? I think it does. I think there's still stuff to play out here. I think that um, there's a couple things that are, in, that are in motion here. One is underlying credit, right, which is, um, is some of the stuff on their books going to go bad? That's the first thing. And they're going to have to take preemptive action for that, maybe additional reserves if that happens. The other aspect is how they negotiate this very complicated issue, Dom, of net interest margin. Do they want to pay up for these deposits? Do they not want to pay up for these deposits? You can see a situation where a banker looks at his book and says, you know what? I'm not going to pay up. I'm going to keep my sticky deposits, the ones that are there that I, I, I'll get divorced before I move my bank account. I want those. Those are the profitable deposits. Let the other ones go. Let somebody else pay for them. For yield chasing. Shrink my book. Shrinking my book means that when the auto dealer comes for a loan to buy the lot next door to expand his, his, his dealership, he may not be able to get that loan. That begins to have a real economic impact. That's what I'm watching. I Our, think the economy is going to slow down enough. They're not going to want the loans. That's the issue. Well, that's it. And, it's and not about whether and they, they don't can want get the them. loan. They it's don't want the deposits. It's about whether they're going to make an application for them. Okay, gentlemen, Dalip, you get the last word he because you're the, the guest here. Ben, ben what, what, Dalip? No, no. Can I? I want to agree with Steve because look, shocks tend to reveal fragilities that have been lurking all along. This shock was no different. Only about half of our deposits in this country are insured. There's now more than a 400 basis point opportunity cost of holding a right. savings account relative to putting your money in a money market fund or purchasing treasuries debt directly. Meanwhile, the switching costs have never been lower. It's only a few clicks away. And our collective awareness has never been higher with 24-7 social media. I've... That's a toxic mix. Hmm. And, and I don't think we should make lazy assumptions about the stickiness of deposits in this context. I knew well, the this. collective knowledge seemed to have gone as far as the Fed and stopped before it got to their front I, door. I knew this conversation was going to get spicy. I knew it from the beginning. Dalip, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. And, of course, our own Steve Leisman here in studio. Thank you very much Pleasure. as well. And don't miss, by the way, a special Jobs in America edition of Squawk Box. We are on the oh, air yeah. tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah. Steve's going to be around. Oh, yeah. 8 a.m. Eastern time. Steve and Rick will join Joe, Becky, and Andrew to break down that big jobs report. Remember, 8 a.m. live television. You've heard of Good Friday? This is going to be great. This is going to be a great Friday. The most important jobs report since the last one. Thank you guys very much. Well, sticking with the Fed, if it keeps hiking, as James Bullard suggested earlier today, can rate-sensitive technology stocks keep on rallying? Our next guests say are both sticking with that sector, but they're getting a little bit more selective with regard to what they're picking. Joining me now on with where they're putting their money to work is Keith Fitzgerald. He's a principal over at the Fitzgerald Group, along with Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Thank you both for being here right now. Uh, Nancy, we'll go to you first. This technology trade you think still has legs. I do, Don. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on with Keith. Um, I do. We have been taking some gains in, in the previous weeks. Uh, we were adding to the group, as you know, in the fall and, and continued to add risk into our portfolios. We've, we've really liked those investments, but as they appreciate, we want to be sure to, you know, to 
capture some of those gains. And so with those gains, we've been reinvesting into energy, but we're still overweight the group. We still think you need technology to solve the productivity problems we're going to have from a very tight labor force. The baby boomers don't seem to be willing to come back and they don't have to because their financial assets are well above where they were pre-pandemic. So we need technology spend. And that's our theme. Old economy companies embracing the digital revolution and the providers of those digital solutions. What are those providers, Nancy? Who, what kind of companies are they? Are they cloud providers? Are they cybersecurity providers? Are they, you know, infrastructure and computer networking equipment providers? What exactly enables that trade? Yeah, so all of the above, but certainly a name like ServiceNow is one of our, our primary and major holdings. We've owned um, in our in our it's in our 12 best ideas portfolio along with Microsoft, which is cloud play among other things, Palo Alto Networks. And uh, we recently reduced our exposure to uh, Salesforce because we got that nice bounce and we, we just think there are better places to be. A name like Broadcom, which is in that space and providing not just cloud solutions, but uh, AI solutions. and um, uh, we also own Google for the cloud and AI exposure. That seems like a pretty revealing theme there. You know, Keith, I see you nodding your head right now. It's got to be because you agree in some ways with what Nancy is saying about the thematic element of that tech trade. That's the key. Nancy is as sharp as they come. And here's the deal is thematically is where you've got to be. We've created 90 plus percent of all the data in humanity in the last few years. Companies to us like Apple and Microsoft are leading the charge because of all of their work in this area. ChatGPT in particular is a Google killer. Google is on the defensive. Everybody else doing that kind of work is on the defensive because they raised the bar. So to us, this is a matter of going forward with a thematic change that's going to structurally change our world. I think there's there's plenty of opportunity, but it's important that not all tech companies are the same. Meta and Google are significantly at risk to barbell my conversation. Okay, so so if that's the case, how exactly then does the allocation go, Keith, in your mind? If you're talking about some, these are mega cap names, they're, they're widely held. They're owned by a lot of ETFs. If you're in mutual funds or ETFs, you probably own these names. Are there ones that are maybe being missed by some of the average investors out there who are just in some of those passive instruments? Well, that's an interesting question because I think that's a sign of strength, actually, the fact that they are so widely held by not only the ETFs and funds, but the pension funds, the endowments, all of the big money has got to own, trade, or hedge those names because they are so significant to our future. If you're looking at smaller names, I think, ironically enough, you've got to get into defense, which is not commonly thought of as technology. But to Nancy's point, it's small companies, all the way down to your gas stations and your laundromats that are adopting technology, usually coming from the big providers which is why, to me, you stick with the winning horse, not switch in the mid-race. Okay, Nancy, we just got through a whole very animated discussion with the panel here about the future direction of interest rates, and it seems to me like the consensus, at least among our panel, was that rates are going to head a little bit lower and kind of stay there, that, that, that the highest rates that we've seen are in the rearview mirror for the time being. If that's the case, wouldn't that be a tailwind for technology, or does the economic narrative of a slowdown far outweigh the valuation component of lower interest rates? So that's the question, Dom. I mean, they, they sold off last year on interest rates. Um, and if you think about it, the co a company like ServiceNow, which I mentioned earlier, they were generating 20% earnings growth, So was uh, or above that, and so was uh, 
uh, Palo Alto Networks, among others. And so I think one of the things you have to think about when you're entering what we think is going to be a recession, not super uh, traumatic, but a recession nonetheless, you want to own companies that are reliable earners. And if those are, in fact, in the technology space and you're getting the benefit of lower interest rates, which which I do agree with, with um, that assessment, then I think you want to continue to use weakness because they're going to chop around here and add to names selectively, especially where you're under weighted. We added to Apple, uh, that's when Keith mentioned uh, earlier this year and uh, after being net sellers for many years. And, and so that's that's the way you want to play it. Uh, Adobe was an ad in the fall as well, ServiceNow, Palo Alto Networks. And then when you get an opportunity to trim them back, you do. But if you get more volatility, you add back in. And I think you will get more chances to buy these stocks this year before the the third quarter is out. Opportunities abound. All right, Keith Fitzgerald, Nancy Tangler, thank you both very much and enjoy the long holiday weekend, guys. You too, Don. Thank you. All right, coming up on the show, from turmoil in banking to threats from China, Silicon Valley is facing some serious headwinds, but one venture capitalist says, don't worry, because deal-making activity is about to tick higher. Slow Ventures' Sam Lesson joins us next with a look at that VC landscape, plus... The Invesco QQQ Trust is coming off its best quarter in nearly three years. So can the momentum continue for mega cap technology? We'll look at the technicals later on in the show. And as we head out to break, let's get a quick check on the markets right now. You can see higher across the board, and we're seeing some outperformance in that tech-heavier Nasdaq Composite Index up north of one-half of 1%. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been nearly a month since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and the tech sector has emerged largely unscathed. In fact, it's rallied and was the best performer in the first quarter. Meta led the way higher, up a whopping 76%. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, also posting big gains. But my next guest expects the good times to continue despite that recent run. Joining me for today's edition of Tech Check is Sam Lesson, partner at Slow Ventures. Also, CNBC's anchor of the Tech Check desk, Deirdre Bosa, joins us for the conversation as well. Uh, Deirdre, we, we've seen and watched this mega cap story play out. Just how important is that (laughs) mega cap tech trade still to the overall market narrative? It is hugely important and a big test coming up in the form of earnings seasons. I mean, big tech is back and we see more of the market concentrated in some of these names. So if they disappoint, that is going to have a wider effect, as you very well know, Dom, on the broader markets. Um, But I will say that there is a disconnect between public and private tech stocks. The big are getting bigger once again. But in the wake of the collapse of SVB, you're seeing the private market, the startup ecosystem, face even more pressure than it was already under. Sam, this is an interesting point because there hasn't been so much focus on the financial ties that kind of bind venture capital firms to their companies in a while. The Silicon Valley Bank's failure really kind of triggered a lot of scrutiny on there. Has it been as bad as as people have been reporting on that that Silicon Valley Bank had ties to nearly half of all VC-backed companies in America? 
You know, look, I think first let me start off by saying I couldn't agree more that I think the big tech is the big story here. And I, I'm very bullish that we'll continue to see a ton of of uh, upward swing on those those names. I mean, the reality is, is they're incredibly well positioned with AI and a lot of the future coming out, owning the distribution of the data. And, you know, look, people forget software is an incredible business. You can change how you look at growth or profitability pretty quickly as long as you have kind of the gusto to really go deep and run a business, which the big names have shown they do. So I think that is the bigger story. In terms of the startup ecosystem, look, SVB, everyone feels like we dodged a bullet, um, you know, a pretty big one at that. But the reality is, is where it is right now, it kind of feels like a no-op. Um, I think, you know, people are going to be a little smarter about how they manage their cash going forward. But I think the answer is, you know, that was a very scary week, not going to have a long-term impact on things. Um, and, you know, the, the ecosystem is the ecosystem. You know, we, there's... Yeah, sorry. Not a long-term impact, Sam. I mean, it's created a much tougher financing environment. I mean, if you're a cash-burning startup or you need a line of credit, you can't turn to the big banks very easily. And as you said, big tech is getting bigger. Isn't that problematic? Well, I, I think for what it's worth, there's no question that if you look at AI and a lot of the mega trends that people are excited about right now, big tech is way better positioned than the startup ecosystem. You know, there's an incredible amount of money being poured this week, this month into AI startups. I expect most of that to go to zero, not because I don't believe in the tech, but because I don't think it's as great a startup opportunity as people think. That said, from a fundamentals perspective, I, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was an incredibly good partner to a lot of startups. I don't think that the financing options you know, available to startups um, are highly dependent on the existence of Silicon Valley Bank or the, uh, exactly how they're operating. Good companies, you know, again, are going to get the financing they need. Um, there's plenty of VC out there. Everyone's being a little more conservative because there's no IPO market and there's no late stage market. You know, Series A's are harder to do. Um, prices are down from where they are. But, you know, there, there's plenty of strength still in the VC ecosystem. And I actually think compared to where we were a few months ago, you're starting to see some fresh shoots. Um, you're seeing more deals actually getting done, uh, more rationality in pricing in a bunch of places. So I think that, you know, the next six months will be not as bad as the last six months. Okay, so Deirdre, I, I want to tilt this conversation because I want to I want to be sure that we hit a little bit of the the story around some of these big tech leaders meeting with government officials yeah. with regard to what's happening in, in our relationship, the U.S.'s tech relationship and media relationship with China. It's going to be a huge trend over the next 10, 20, 30 years, yeah. this kind of battled competition between us and China. Uh, uh, Deirdre, I'll, I'll go to you first for this. What exactly are we expecting with regard to the content or what comes out of some of these meetings between these government officials and tech CEOs? I mean, the beneficial part is that this is happening behind closed doors. So you can maybe have a more candid conversation between lawmakers, say, and Apple, which is hugely dependent on China, not just for its supply chain manufacturing, but for its customers as well. I mean, this is what has separated Apple from other companies, that huge amount of success that they've seen among Chinese customers that companies like Google and Meta have not had access to. So I think that the big tech companies, Apple in particular, it's going to have to explain their China um, policy and how they're going to diversify to this China plus one strategy um, because they're feeling the pressure. So as we see geopolitical tensions rise, lawmakers are going to have some of these tough questions and they're going to be very interested in those future manufacturing plans, whether they be in India or right here in the U.S. And that's going to change the cost proposition and the supply chain for Sa the big tech companies. Sam, this is an excellent point here. And by the way, the reason why this is so key is because 
This is, in fact, going to be a race between the U.S. and China. It's, it was supercomputing for a number of years. It still is. But AI is the offshoot of that supercomputing arms race. And now you have investments that are spanning different parts of the market as well, both here in the U.S., Chinese companies investing here, and even our companies investing in technology in China. What exactly does that race look like from a venture capitalist perspective? You know, look, you know, the information yesterday broke the story that Sequoia is now backing the biggest competitor to open AI in China with American LP dollars. And that threw up a bunch of pretty heated Twitter discussions um, online about what we should and shouldn't be doing, you know, and how you think about kind of some of these international competitions. You know, show at TikTok, other information, you know, exclusive was saying about a third of his reports are literally in policy roles. So this is the story. You know, we haven't had to contend with an anti-globalization trend in a long time. So, you know, Silicon Valley and, and VC has grown up in a world of increasing globalization. And so, you know, there's been a lot that's fair game. There is no question that the tensions with China and how you think about AI, its applications and its uses, even in today's form, where it's just very powerful for things like misinformation potentially, are a big deal. Um, And I do think that some battle lines are going to have to be redrawn. There's going to need to be comprehensive policy about how we think about this stuff and where we're willing to internationally collaborate versus compete for sure. A much broader discussion to be had. But that is your edition of Tech Check here on The Exchange today. Sam Lesson, thank you very much. And, of course, our own Deirdre Bosa. Thank you both. Have a great holiday weekend, guys. Thanks, Tom. All right. Coming up at the show, could the spike in layoffs lead to a hike in your taxes? The numbers you'll need to know, especially if you live in New York or California. That's coming up ahead. And as we head out to break, check out shares of Boeing turning positive on a report that it's poised for a 23% jump in 737 model jet production by mid-year. That's helping the Dow to erase a 157-point loss at one point. Microsoft leading the blue chips higher. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and this is your CNBC News update at this hour. A Japanese military helicopter crashed into the sea near Okinawa. The chopper was carrying out surveillance activities at the time of the crash. The Japanese Coast Guard currently searching for the 10 people who were on board that aircraft. Media reports say that officials have found parts of the helicopter in the sea, but no bodies have been rescued or recovered yet. Militants in Lebanon fired a series of rockets at Israel, according to the Israeli military. That's raising tensions during what is the region's holiest week of the year. Of the 34 rockets that were fired across the border, the Israeli military said its defense system shot down 25. However, at least two people were wounded in the attacks. And on this Holy Thursday, Pope Francis washed the feet of a dozen juveniles, serving time in a Rome prison. The ritual symbolizes humility and replicates what Christians believe Jesus did to his apostles at the Last Supper before he was arrested and eventually crucified. The Pope's visit comes days after he was discharged from hospital last weekend following a bout of bronchitis. Dom, back to you. All right, thank you very much, Tyler Matheson, for the news headlines there. Still ahead on the show, the Nasdaq 100 is up about 19% so far this year. But with all the macro uncertainty, should you trust the tech rally? One technician says yes. She'll join us to make her bull case for the stock market and reveal the one tech name that's facing the big headwinds coming up next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The Nasdaq 100 climbed more than 20 percent in just the first quarter alone. And while it's lost some of that positive momentum in the first week of the second quarter, falling a little more than 1 percent, our next guest says there is still a strong bullish case forming for that so-called NDX, the Nasdaq 100. Joining me now is Jessica Inskip, director of product over at Options Play. Jessica, there's a lot of folks out there. There are a lot of folks out there who hope that you're right because those mega cap technology names are so important to this market. Why the bull case for the NASDAQ? Absolutely. And it's all from a technical perspective, which, of course, could be driven by fundamentals. But the the market's fueled by tech. It leads the rallies, the bear market rallies, the declines. And consistently, when the market's running on E, gets that refill around earnings from tech. So NDX has... Some, it's stuck really between two key milestones. One is the January 30th high of 12,880. I want to see that overcome, which is now its old resistance and support. So we've seen that tested today. NDX is, is really validating that support. Next, the second milestone is the late gap in August that was formed from 13,175 to 13,210. We need to see that overcome in order to, to have more of a bullish case. So right now, I see it stuck in between those, t, those two key bull milestones and kind of range bound until we can break above that 13,175, we'll call it 13,200 level. And more importantly, when I, I look at a broader picture of a chart, is I look at for the trading cycle. Is there a bullish base forming? Where is the trend? And NDX has consistent closes above the 26 and the 40 weekly moving averages. So I look where is the security above and below those averages in addition to the slope of that line. And as prices are increasing, we see an upward slope. So that tells me that there's a bullish base forming, which which really validates a larger view that we support this level where we're at right now and have continuous momentum to go upwards, which, of course, is focusing on earnings. All right. So, Jessica, that begs the question. That's the index level. There have to be stocks with good patterns and bullish patterns forming that are going to drive some of that index performance. What's the most compelling bull case to you in that Nasdaq 100 trade? So the, the, the bull I want to pull is, is Microsoft. Microsoft, you know, that AI is, is certainly all of the frenzy and, and overhype, but let's look at it from a technical perspective. There are a really big bullish milestone ahead. Their trading cycle is absolutely bullish. We've got that milestone of 292, which is the mid-August lower high. If we overcome that, then we can go to about a, a little above 300, about 312. And what's important is that gap that we just talked about with NDX that it needs to fill in order to have more of a bullish base case. Microsoft is one step ahead and already filled that gap. And now we're on to the next milestone, which would be a March 2022 high, which is insane to absolutely even think about right now in this current environment. And the trading cycle, of course, just like we were looking at with, with NASDAQ and all the charts, consistent closes above the 26 and 40 tell me that quarter over quarter, we have an increase in prices. So therefore, that, su- that supports a, a solid base in a bull case, giving us bullish momentum. All right. So there's the bullish momentum, and it's a big factor. It's a, one of the biggest companies out there and the biggest weighting. Let's talk about where there is the flagging element, where there could be a big drag, what, what are the charts showing for the kind of bear case or what stocks are going to have the most in terms of headwinds? And that's from looking at Amazon, which technically falls under consumer discretionary. Um, there is 
another significant resistance ahead, but their trading cycle is actually an immediate near-term bearish, which tells me that it doesn't have momentum that it needs to get to that trading cycle. If you take a look at the chart, we look at the, again, 26 and 40 week. Now you see that this is a step behind the NDX. We've closed above the 26 weekly moving average, which now becomes our support level, but we're having difficulty going above the 40 weekly. So I'm looking for consistent closes above that in addition to price increases to have a bullish case, this absolutely has the inverse. So as I see the downward slope, I suspect that Amazon has some short-term momentum to get to that, that um, 106, 40 weekly moving average before it retracts down and will probably race to support around 96, which is the 26 weekly. And that could even trigger the earlier lows around 88. Now, what I think is really interesting is a different type of chart is we've been talking about absolute charts. Relative charts will give me a more early indication. So how is the security performing versus the broader market or perhaps even its sector? In this case, we look at Amazon versus the S&P 500. You see this clear downwards trend line, which supports there's, there's there's some movement to go up to that trend line, but we have not even come close to, to even surpassing that. So that tells me and supports that case of we'll probably have some near-term momentum to that 106 level and sure. then retrace and race back down. All right. Jessica Inskip at Options Play, the bull case for Microsoft and the bear case for Amazon. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, Jessica. Thank you. All right. Still ahead on the show. This consumer staple is climbing over 8% over the past month, hitting another all-time high today. We will reveal that name and the other stocks also marking that record high milestone coming up next after the break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now in the green. The Dow just about flat on the session, but still 15 points to the upside. The S&P up by about one quarter of 1%, 11 points up, 4,101 the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite outperforming up about two-thirds of 1%, 75 points up, 12,072 for that composite. Communication services, the best-performing sector today, followed along by technology, arguably the two most important sectors out there. Healthcare is also up about one-third of 1%. Financials, real estate, kind of the laggards in the trading so far. Now, the mystery chart that we showed you before the commercial break, it's actually Hershey. It was that mystery chart that we showed you. It's, it's riding a six-day winning streak at this point. Hit a record high in trading today, along with shares of Lamb Weston and Progressive as well. So a lot of people like me drawing these yellow stars. So I'm going to draw the gold stars next to each of these names. And by the way, honorable mention as well going to Mondelez, Lower on the session right now, but did notch a record high earlier today. Still ahead on the show, job cuts topping 270,000 in 2023 alone, according to new data. And according to the conference board, there are more job cuts coming down the pike. The industry's most at risk coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. As Wall Street awaits tomorrow's big jobs report, new data shows layoffs are up nearly fivefold in 2023. There have been over 270,000 planned cuts year to date, a nearly 400 percent increase year over year. And with more likely to come, the conference board just launched the Job Loss Risk Index. Now, it measures the industry's most likely at risk for more cuts ahead versus sectors it deems least at risk. 
So here to discuss is conference board president and CEO Steve Odlin. He's also a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's always great to get your thoughts. The, uh, a guy who's got the pulse of the business community out there. Let's talk a little bit about why the jobs market right now is so in focus and what exactly is it telling you from a business sentiment perspective? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, the conference board is projecting that the U.S. will have a recession this year. We're saying it's going to be relatively mild and brief, but it should occur sometime between now and the end of the calendar year. And that will uh, have job losses as part of it. And this is consistent with what the Fed is saying as they try to battle inflation and bring the inflation rate down towards their 2% target, that they're willing to take some pain not only in GDP growth, but also in the job market. So we're projecting that there should be something on the north of a million jobs lost during this cycle. Our latest job loss index, though, shows that it's not going to be even across all sectors, that in fact some sectors are at much higher risk. They are the kind of obvious ones, Don, because you know during the pandemic and the lockdown, there was the, uh, the, the big rush in, in, in the uh, information services, the tech area, everything, e-commerce. And those are the areas that overhired during this period of time. And now you're seeing a fall off with that. And so that those sectors will be the hardest hit. Uh, following that will be warehousing and transportation, those areas that follow on from that same trend, but also construction, uh, repair, and some personal services. Construction, because as the recession kicks in here, construction should uh, should come down. The places where you're not going to see uh, layoffs are in the health and social service area, which healthcare is booming for all the reasons we know, aging market and so forth. And then the lowest risk is in the federal government, private educational services and so forth, which are very stable kinds of sectors. Steve, you've been a CEO in, in, in a prior life as well for a private sector business, not just here at the conference board. Uh, I wonder, uh, in, in the time we have left here, if you might talk a little bit about what you think or what you're seeing on the, from the conference board's perspective about just how big of an impact the regional banking issues that we have right now will affect the overall business environment. We've heard credit crunch mentioned quite a bit over the last couple of weeks here. Do you believe as though the business environment will slow down because of the regional bank issues that we've had? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, and it's because mostly this lower, you know, this mid-tier bank to the smaller banks service the small business sector. And that's where we have the most worries, Dom. It's not the large businesses who are suffering, you know, lack of uh, access to capital. But, you know, small businesses run their companies based on loans or lines of credit from these regional banks. They use their own credit cards. You know, as cost of debt goes up, the cost of credit cards goes up, the cost of borrowing goes up, but also the liquidity comes down as these banks have to replenish their balance sheets. That liquidity comes out of the marketplace. And, you know, you saw this in 2008 and 2009 all throughout the sector where liquidity went to the banks. And that was the right thing to do. But the banks then didn't provide that liquidity back out into the marketplace, and you saw hundreds of bankruptcies. That's the risk today. So I think the Fed gets it. The Treasury is, is getting I mean, they're flooding the markets with liquidity. They're backstopping everything. I think they've done a good job of cutting the panic and so forth. But there are these ripple effects as banks become more conservative with their balance sheets. So our recommendation to CEOs is every CEO should be getting more conservative as well. You've got to have cash on hand. You've got to have lines of credit. You've got to have backstops. 
you know, you've got to make sure that in the worst case, you've got enough to get through whatever's coming here. All right. Steve Odland with the case there for CEOs. Thank you very much, sir. Have a nice week and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Tom. All right. Well, sticking with that layoff story, while real estate investor Bill Rudin told Squawk Box this morning, don't bet against New York, the drastic job cuts in both tech and Wall Street are having an impact on that state's revenues. Robert Frank joins me now with a look at the looming crisis both here in New York in that area and, of course, on the West Coast as well. Robert. Hey, Dom. Well, as you were just mentioning, a lot of these layoffs are high-income jobs in tech, finance, services, and that's starting to show up in the tax collections. California tax revenue falling 4% over the past year. New York down 1%. The rest of the states are actually up 11%. New York and California down more than 10% now from their peak last year. One reason is the falling stock market and all that tech wealth that's reduced the capital gains revenue. But the big worry right now is that withholding taxes, so that's payroll taxes, those are all also falling. Dan Clifton at Strategus says unemployment is rising in both states, especially among the high income workers who, of course, pay more taxes. Bonus income is falling. Wall Street bonuses down 26 percent this year. And wealth flight, those high income taxpayers who moved out during the pandemic, they may now finally be showing up on the tax rolls. Both states have potential budget problems now as a result of all this, especially as the federal aid from the pandemic starts to run out. California had a $100 billion surplus just six months ago. Now it is looking at a $22 billion deficit. New York's budget is delayed as the state legislature battles the governor over spending and potential tax hikes on the wealthy. New York City also facing a sudden squeeze from higher spending and slower revenue. Mayor Adams saying a $4 billion budget hole in New York City will force cuts in almost every city agency. So, Dom, you have to add potentially some state job cuts with all these other private sector job cuts. We've just got a couple seconds left here, Robert. I have to ask, what could this impact be for a potential recession? Well, look, if two of the biggest states have to cut jobs along with some of the biggest cities, that's going to cut payrolls and add to these layoffs and cut taxes even further. All right. Robert Frank with the latest there on the tax situation. Thank you very much. Uh, and before we go, I want to draw your attention to a result from just coming out from a new Just Capital survey regarding layoffs. Forty one percent of respondents said mass layoffs will improve profits short term, but only 26 percent think that that will hold for the longer term benefit of companies. And when it comes to the overall economy, nearly 71 percent of Americans see job cuts as having a negative impact from our friends over at Just Capital. Well, that does it for us here on The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, we're looking at the tie cam right now. Concerns of tightening credit ramping up. They're going to talk to the CEO of LendingTree about what he's seeing ahead. And there's already tie. You can see getting ready. Power Lunch is back after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.